It's going to be in Mark 14, starting at verse 53 this morning, and we're going to make our way all the way down through verse uh, 65, and then because we covered 66 to the end of the chapter prior, we'll be ready to start chapter 15 next week. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Since we began working through the book of Mark well over a year ago now, we've been concerning ourselves with one question in particular, and that question is, who is Jesus? And if you remember all the way back when we began this journey, we said that Mark believes and writes to the end of making us believe that Jesus is God himself, that he came to absorb the wrath due to us himself in order to reconcile us to himself. We said that Mark wants us to know that Jesus rose from the dead, proving the acceptability of his death, his power over death, and his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. And consequently, this question of Jesus' identity, it is underneath every pericope, every sentence, indeed every word in the book of Mark. And so today we come to a very important scene. We witness Jesus answering this question of his identity. He answers the question, who is Jesus for us? The scene before us today is one that should burn itself onto your brain and brand itself onto your skin. Yes, Jesus has been betrayed and abandoned. But now, with his own words, he seals his own fate. In our text, we'll see the religious leaders condemned Jesus not on the basis of the false testimony from their false witnesses, but on the basis of honest testimony from the lips of the way, the truth, and the life himself. main idea today that I I want you to try and think about is that Jesus gives honest testimony and tells everyone who he is. And as a consequence of his own testimony, he is condemned. This morning, Jesus lets out that messianic secret in Mark. Remember way back when Jesus would do a miracle and then the disciples or whoever was healed, they'd want to tell everybody who he was and he would say, shh, don't tell anybody. Well, now he's going to tell everybody. The messianic secret is out. The hour for which Jesus came is upon us. That's that's the main idea, that Jesus gives honest testimony. He's, He's going to tell everyone who he is. And then I want to exhort you this morning to believe the testimony of Jesus, to believe the truth about who Jesus is. We're going to do it in six parts. The distance in verses 53 through 54, the false witnesses in 55 through 59, the silence in 60 through the first part of 61, the confession in the second half of 61, the testimony in verse 62. Sorry, I think I have five. No, six, the condemnation. In verses 63 to 65, let's pray and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we have to spend together to sit beneath your teaching. Pray that your spirit would be among us, that we might think appropriately, feel deeply. I'm sorry, think well, feel deeply, and respond appropriately. Allow these words to, to shape us after your image. Help us to be still and to listen well in this coming time. Let your word have an effect on how we live our lives. Continue to change us into the beauties that you have made us. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A, a little bit of context before we get into verse 53. If you remember, we've just had the Last Supper, and then the disciples, Peter, James, and John, just three of them, went into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, where he was troubled all night long, and he fell to the ground at the prospect of being sold out by Judas unto his death on the cross, and at, during that time in the garden, he had told Peter, James, and John, hey, stay awake and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Be alert. And they continued to fall in and out of sleep throughout the night, and then he said, hey, our, my betrayer is upon us. It's enough. Here comes Judas, and would you know it, Judas showed up last week with a host at his back, and eventually after uh, some sores were flashed across the face of the enemy, some ears cut off and healed Uh, Some things went down. After all this, Jesus ends up seized and bound, and his disciples have fled from him. And so he's been left, and he's been arrested. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Peter has fled like the rest, but he's now returned and is following Jesus at a distance. Peter loves Jesus. I mean, they are close friends. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jesus and Peter, I think they're best friends. I mean, if they were teenage girls today, they might have best friend bracelets, right? That's a thing still, I think. But they are tight-knit This is what prompts Peter to return while everyone else has fled. See, Peter loves Jesus, but what this distance shows us, what his initial fleeing shows us, is that he loves Jesus, but not enough to be identified with Jesus. Not enough to pay the price of following Jesus. See, Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. He's exchanged loyalty to Jesus for safety. Peter's unfaithfulness to Jesus, his denial of the truth, his false witness begins with his distance. The physical space that Peter has created between himself and Jesus, it's just an illustration of a spiritual reality that's taking place. And and this distance is brought up again by Mark at the end when we actually see Peter's denials. He denies once and then he moves further away from Jesus in the courtyard. And it just serves to illustrate what's going on in the heart of Peter. He wants to avoid the vulnerability that would come as a result of remaining loyal to Jesus. And so he hides himself in the security of anonymity. He believes the lie that he can obey Jesus without dying with Jesus. He believes that he can follow Jesus without giving himself up. And I think this is the type of lie we buy together with Peter, hook, line, and sinker. We like to believe that that we can follow Jesus but keep ourselves safe at the same time. It won't cost us anything like to believe that that we can follow him without giving ourselves up to him, that we can be loyal without becoming vulnerable to injustice, that we can have relationship with Jesus that is private, safe, almost anonymous. 
But see, Jesus has not left that option open to Peter or to us. Recall his words in chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then he continues in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. And so I think it's easy to see Peter's disobedience to what Jesus has said in Mark 8 here, right? It's easy to see that Peter has not unashamedly taken up his cross and followed Jesus, that he hasn't lost his life, and that he probably should have. It's a little bit harder to see what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? I think that the self-denial Jesus calls us to the letting go of our own self-determination, it, it has to, we have to let go of our own self-determination and replace it with obedience and dependence upon Jesus. That's what we're called to. And so for us, following Jesus will require that our utmost loyalty be to Jesus rather than ourselves. It means we become more devoted when we follow Jesus. When you become a Christian, it means that you become more devoted to Him than you are to me, right? Your life becomes about God rather than yourself. And, and the point I'm trying to make here is that discipleship requires a radical loyalty to Jesus. It requires dangerous devotion. It requires being vulnerable to injustice. It requires stepping out of the shadows and publicly identifying with Jesus. It requires giving ourselves up to him. Uh, have you ever heard the saying, a good friend will bail you out of jail, but a true friend will be sitting next to you? Right? You've probably heard that. It's a funny phrase, but I think that this jovial saying applies to followers of Christ. True discipleship requires being arrested with Jesus instead of denying him while warming yourself beside a fire. So the question I want to set before us is, how are we like Peter? How are you distancing yourself from Jesus? How have you distanced yourself from Jesus? Let me offer three common ways I think that we do this. First, I think one way we distance ourselves from Jesus is by, like Peter, hiding our identity. Peter doesn't want anybody to find out who he is, because if they do, he's afraid that they'll kill him. He doesn't want to be identified with Jesus. He's hiding it. He's masking it. I think we do this. I think that we are concerned about how our friends, our family, our co-workers, others might respond if they found out we were a Christian. It's not, it's not like we're hiding it, maybe, we, we say to ourselves, but that we're just not going to go and tell everybody. We're not going to advertise that we're a Christian. So we hide our identity. We don't let it be known that we are with Jesus. We don't identify clearly with him in that way. I think the second way is related to the first. We simply don't, we don't share our own identity in Christ, nor do we share the gospel of Christ. You know, if we're afraid to let people know that we're Christians, we certainly are terrified to tell them the Christian message. Simply don't share the gospel. Our concern is that we might, might look silly, might not have all the answers to someone's questions. 
And so we dismiss it. We, we don't share the good news. And instead of looking for ways to build relationships and to share the gospel, we look for ways of not sharing it. You know, it's poor form, we tell ourselves, to talk politics or religion before we proceed to talk politics. But we will not talk religion. I think the third way, and, and I think this is the most popular way, that Christians distance themselves from Jesus is by distancing themselves from his bride. We want to identify as Christians, but we don't want anybody to know it. We're not going to share it with anybody. And then we're certainly not going to identify with ourselves with his church because they're all religious people. And I can't tell you how often I run into Christians that are more devoted to things or people other than their church. And I've met people in, in our own community that, that have informed me, uh, somebody recently, that they're members of the church. And I'm going, I've, I've been here two years, I haven't met you. You know, Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ. And, you know, I don't have a body part I haven't met. I think it's a shame that somewhere along the line, and it's not just unique to our church, I think it applies to other churches as well, that it became easier to belong to a church than it did a bowling league. That we think that church membership is some rite of passage. It's not really important. And so we distance ourselves from the people of God while claiming to belong to God. We claim to love Jesus, but refuse to love his bride. I think it's sad that alleged disciples think they can follow Jesus with their lives and neglect the church that he saved them out of the world into and onto mission with. And friends, Jesus told us to follow him with our whole lives. And yet somehow we've turned the divine call to die to ourselves and live in fellowship with him and with one another. We've turned it into an impotent suggestion. And it breaks my heart that so many so-called Christians think of Jesus as garnish on their lives. You know, they think of him as one who flippantly distributes get-out-of-hell-free cards. Doesn't make any demands. Doesn't require their loving devotion. How often do we, instead of showing our love for Christ by our love for one another, instead showcase our love for ourselves by divorcing ourselves from other Christians? But you're here, aren't you? And so you're sitting there going, hey, that's not a problem for me. I'm, I'm in church. I think others of us distance ourselves in a very similar way. We show up, but we're not all in. We show up on a, a Sunday morning for an hour, but don't, don't ask us to meet outside of that hour. Don't ask us to pick up the phone and call one another. Don't ask us to pray for one another. We'll be in community with God's people, but we won't become vulnerable. We won't share our fears and our struggles and our sins. Somebody might find out we don't have it all together or that we're dreadfully weak and needy. So we keep those things to ourselves. We hide our sins from one another and put on the veneer of moralism. I'm good. As a consequence of our hiding ourselves, we fail to grow healthily as Christ would have us. We begin to wither spiritually. There's a lot more to say here, um, but we're going to move on. I'm just going to say, church, if we believe the truth about Jesus, 
we need to give honest testimony about Jesus by closing the gap between our words and our actions. You understand what I'm saying? Is that we need to, unlike Peter, be willing to identify ourselves with Jesus. And part of how the people of God identify themselves with Jesus is by identifying themselves with his church, with one another. And when we do that, when we're living in community, when we're loving one another, Jesus says, you'll know, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. We are proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming its validity. We're proclaiming its truth because its truth is played out on a stage before the world as we gather weekly, as we get into one another's homes, as we pray for one another, pray for the world, as we evangelize, as we show our affection for Christ and for one another by obeying the commands of God, we show the world that the gospel isn't just make-believe, something that's true. We need to close the distance between us and Jesus and identify with him and his people clearly. Peter's following Jesus at a distance here. It's actually the beginning of his story, the story of his denial, but it's interrupted with the story of Jesus' makeshift trial. This indeed is it's another Mark and Sandwich. We've seen these over and over again throughout Mark, right? He takes one story and then he interrupts it with another story by just jamming it right in the middle. And the reason he does this is he uses the middle story as an interpretive key to help us see the truth of the middle story more brightly and the truth of the outside story more clearly. And so he's putting the story of Jesus' trial right here in the middle. And one of the things he's showing us, and we commented on it before when we talked about Peter's denial in a different sermon, is that he's contrasting all these false witnesses we're about to see and the false testimony of Peter, he says he doesn't know Jesus when he does, with the true testimony of Jesus. You see that? Everybody around Jesus is lying, but he is telling the truth. He is bearing the truth of his identity. And it's going to get him killed. See, Mark's telling of Peter's failure, which is interrupted by Jesus' trial, it's designed to let Jesus' final statement of his vocation come to life for us. It's to bring it front and center. Mark wants us to see the stark contrast between the honest testimony of Jesus and the false witness born by others. Let's look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So so what we have here is all the Jewish brass has come together to get rid of the wonderkind rabbi from Galilee. Jesus has upset the apple cart so much so that the high priest wants him dead. That's, That's pretty big news. And so we see that there's a gathering of many false witnesses. The the religious leaders here, they have their verdict, guilty. They have their sentence, death. Now all they need are the charges. And so they will get them through this false testimony. Now, I don't really know how they gathered or, or chose those that would testify against Jesus here. The text doesn't tell us. Um, but, but in my imagination, I like to believe they held uh, open tryouts, like a weird rehearsal. Uh, you know, and they're sitting there, 
you know, state your name and tell your story. So I, I'm the widow from Nain, and Jesus, he raised my son from the dead at his funeral procession. Isn't that crazy? Um, not exactly what we're looking for, lady. Next. Yeah, people call me legion on account of how many demons I had cast out of me. Uh, before I met Jesus, I lived in a, a graveyard. I, I cut myself, and I went around naked. It was crazy. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, next. Now, who are you? I'm the paralytic. Get out. Right? Where did they get these guys? Where did they get these false witnesses? I, I, I don't know. And I kind of say it a little bit jokingly, but it really must have been a tall order trying to find people to testify against Jesus. But they do find some. They're willing to lie about Jesus. But these fools can't get their testimony to line up. And, and the law requires that their testimony agree, that the testimony of at least two witnesses agree in order to have a conviction. But they can't get their stories straight. And so the high priest enters into this process by asking questions, beginning in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in their midst and asked, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Jesus gives no answer to the high priest's impatient questions and his silence is intentional. Mark records this silence intentionally. See, silence is patterned after the suffering servant of Isaiah whose silence represents his innocence. It's Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is implicitly showing himself to be the suffering servant. And when he does speak, he will tell us explicitly that he's also the Messiah and God. He's silent now, though. He is the suffering servant. And that silence is under the high priest's skin. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The way Caiaphas, that's the name of the high priest here, asks this question is really, really interesting. Uh, listen to what James Edwards writes. In the original Greek wording, that is put forth here, it's put in the statement with a question implied. You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. The you is emphatic, and the Blessed One is a Jewish circumlocution for God's name. It means none other than God's Son. The effect is to put a full Christological confession into the mouth of the high priest. More simply, Caiaphas here poses a statement to Jesus as a question. Maybe it sounded something like this. You are the Messiah, the Son of God? Question mark. N.T. Wright notes that the front end of the confession is actually identical to what Peter said when he confessed Christ in chapter 8, verse 29. It simply says, you are the Christ. So what we have is a confession in the mouth of the high priest. Even though it's given as a question, though, which I think tips us off, this high priest knows a little bit about who Jesus is. He's going to refuse to believe it. 
And so what we have, I think, is Romans 1 on display, right? Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. I wonder how often we might be like Caiaphas, ignore the truth about who Jesus is. Perhaps if you're here in a non-Christian, you're a non-Christian, do you know, is it possible that you know the truth about Jesus but refuse to believe it? I mean, biblically, historically, all the evidence surrounding Jesus suggests that he rose from the dead. If you want to reject the resurrection of Christ, you have to explain why. And to be quite honest, the explanations for it are not very good. Uh, The most popular one, and we've talked about it before, it's called the swoon theory. Right, remember, Jesus didn't really die. He had nails in his hands and a spear shoved in his side, but he wasn't dead. He was just kind of almost barely flatlining, and then they put him in the tomb, and after a little while, he resuscitated, found his way out of the tomb, and then started showing up to folks, and that is what really happened. He didn't really resurrect. That's the best alternate theory that's out there. That's the most popular one in academia. There are others, like Jesus had a twin that nobody ever saw, and he showed up later after Jesus was killed, and people thought he resurrected, right? These are silly, a little bit ridiculous, right? The swoon one, I think, is a little bit more ridiculous, where you had to believe Roman soldiers who, who were trained killers, that they misdiagnosed death. Sorry, we thought he was dead. And that Jesus had somehow figured out how to live after having a, sheer, a spear shoved in his side and like, looked good afterwards. Like People thought that he resurrected and didn't just get really beat up. I mean, really? Some, some of these theories... They take more faith to believe than it does to believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that he did what he said he would come to do. So I think the real reason people reject Jesus, the real reason people reject Christianity, it's not because the evidence. It's because they don't like what Jesus means for their lives. See, everybody has a worldview. Romans tells us that when we don't worship the God of the universe, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and that we worship idols in the place of God. And so everybody, whether Christian or non-Christian, worships something. And so another way to explain sin is that it's worship gone wrong, worship in the direction of something that's not God. And one of the ways that our culture does this is we just build the source of our meaning into other things. And so if you can just think about if you are kind of like the high priest here and you've said my source of meaning is in my career or in materialism, it's in some other thing aside from God. If Jesus really is God, that wrecks your life. It means everything about you has to change. I think in this case, and and for for most of us, I think the most popular religion, I always say selfism, we get really wrapped up in ourselves. Uh, In America, we, we say we are the source of our meaning. We are the captain of our soul. We control our destiny. We're completely autonomous. But if Jesus really did rise from the grave, that means that he has claim on our lives, that he created us. It means that we can no longer be the captain of our own souls or uh, master of our own destinies. It means that we can't just live our lives without consequence. It means that there is a God and a judge and that he has the right to make demands of us. I mean, and if God can make demands of my life, that changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus demands our attention, and it demands a decision. And so I wonder, are you like the high priest, ignoring the truth about Jesus 
because you don't like it, because you don't want it to be true, because it will change everything. And it does change everything. Caiaphas's confessional question results in Jesus breaking his silence in the second half of verse 61. The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a divine mic drop. right? Jesus says, I am and you will. I am and you will. This, this is the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. Jesus has, with his silence, identified himself as the suffering servant. And now he identifies himself as the Messiah and as God. Jesus is unraveling the great mysteries of the Old Testament by revealing himself. He declares himself to be the Messiah and God with his affirmation to the question and by applying two different passages of Scripture to himself, one of which is Psalm 110, verse 1, which we read earlier. And remember, he quoted that back in chapter 12 when he was telling people the most important question in life is not what is the greatest commandment because you, after all, can't keep the greatest commandment. The greatest question is who is the Messiah? And then he proceeds to quote, the Lord said to my Lord from Psalm 110, verse 1, and says, why would David call him Lord if he's his subordinate, if he's his, if he's his child, right? Not many fathers call their sons Lord, and he's pointing out that this person, this character, this messianic figure in Psalm 110, well, he's more than just human. He comes from David, but he was before David. He's God. He's saying, I am the Messiah, and I will ascend to rule from the very throne of God. He also uses Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He applies them to himself. He's asserting that he will come to rule and judge the earth. To sum up, Jesus is saying, I am God and you will be judged. Timothy Keller writes, in both of Jesus's biblical allusions, the Son of Man and at his right hand, the Messiah comes as judge. Everybody in the room knows who the Son of Man is. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God to the earth in the clouds of heaven to judge the world. And these clouds are the very glory of God, His very presence. Therefore, by replying as He does, Jesus is saying, I will come to the earth in the very glory of God and judge the entire world. I mean, of all things Jesus could have said, and there are so many texts, themes, images, metaphors, and passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that he could have used to tell who he was. He specifically says he's the judge. By his choice of text, Jesus is deliberately forcing us to see the paradox before us. There's been an enormous reversal. Jesus is the judge over the entire world, being judged by the world. He should be in the judgment seat. And we should be in the dock in chains. Everything is upside down. I mean, everything is upside down. This, this is the gospel. God becomes a man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He becomes a man, dies in the place of sinful men, is buried like a man, and rises from the dead unlike any other man because he is the God-man. He is unique. 
this theological teaching that Jesus is fully God and fully man, it's exponentially important. Theologians refer to it as the hypostatic union. Some of you know that I, uh, I secretly uh, wish that I grew up to be a rapper. Uh, somehow I ended up uh, pastor instead. But because of this dream, every once in a while, I, I have to work in some rhymes into my sermon, you know, just, just get it out of my system a little bit. This is such an occasion. So listen to how rap artist Shy Lin sums up the hypostatic union in his song, which goes by that title. <clears throat> I'm getting ready, you know, I'm nervous now. <clears throat> Our topic of discussion is beyond human comprehension. The infinite God has made a super condescension, the kind of entrance nobody could have anticipated precipitated by the evil we participated in through Adam and Eve, our first kin, cursed when they committed the first sin. Only if you have the Holy Spirit's antennas can you truly understand fallen man's dilemma. See, only a human can substitute for human lies, but only God can take the wrath of God and survive. See the humanly unsolvable obstacle? With God, all is plausible. Nothing's impossible. True haters will fight it, but the story is certain. Two natures united in one glorious person. Jesus, the God-man, official soul reaper, the hypostatic union, it gets no deeper. The Son of God, 100% divinity, self-existent, second person of the Trinity. Magisterial, imperial at the helm, infinitely transcending this material realm. He's so original, getting to know him is pivotal. Behold, the invisible, prototypical, holy principle, possessor of all divine attributes, the omnis, wisdom, grace, beauty, love, wrath, and truth. He's the one that all creation was made through, and by him the earth's foundation was laid too. Ask the angels, they saw it on pay-per-view, created Satan too. Matter of fact, he created you, and nothing can escape Jesus's can escape Jesus's sovereign rule from the farthest galaxy to the smallest molecule. So who deserves to gain fame by the word of his power? The universe is maintained. In other words, put the cosmos back on the shelf. Without Christ, reality would collapse on itself. Jesus, the marvelous author of all consciousness, beyond what the sharpest biologist acknowledges. He needs no archaeologist or smart apologist. He sees all hearts, omnipresent cardiologist, master of logic, macrocosmic novelist. Following any other god is just preposterous. The son of man, 100% humanity, the mind stretches to understand. How can it be? You've got to see what he does, becoming what he wants, becoming what he wasn't while never ceasing to be what he was. That's important. Becoming what he wasn't while never ceasing to be what he was. Is your mind flipping? That got you tripping? Me too, but the scriptures too. Read Philippians 2. By faith we believe this amazing Jesus who made Uranus and Venus became a fetus. It's such a secret that few, if anybody, knew it. Months later, he was covered in amniotic fluid. The subject of the Gospels, praise of the apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits, and nostrils. Who is this Jesus? God clothed in human weakness, super sweetness and peace for true believers. See the one who never tires, knocked out and sleeping. See the source of eternal joy, weeping. Which one can explain how the sun, abundant with fame, who made the thunder and the rain, now has hunger pains? See the creator of water become thirsty. On the cross, when he saves from the slaughter the unworthy, my awe should be sky high and I ought to just cry, why? With water in my eyes, when the author of life dies, raised on the third, he is the God-man, the soul seeker. The hypostatic union, it gets no deeper. 
This is what Jesus is telling everyone. He is God in the flesh. And he has come to rescue his people. And this is, this is mind-blowing, mind-boggling, and it's essential to our understanding of the gospel. It's essential to our understanding of God himself. Jesus' honest testimony here together with the rest of the New Testament helps us to see the gospel and the Trinitarian nature of our God more clearly. It's important to note the Trinity here too because uh, it's the most foundational of all biblical, of biblical Christianity. Uh, and so I want to refresh your memory right quick, uh, semi-quick, <laughs> by providing a, a, a somewhat concise explanation. If you remember, we said the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one God, eternally existent in three persons. It is not tritheism with three different gods who work in harmony. It is not modalism or unipersonalism with God taking different forms and manifesting himself in different ways as if he were just changing masks. It is Trinitarianism. It is one God comprised of three persons who know and love one another. God is not more fundamentally one than he is three. God is not more fundamentally three than he is one. Obviously, all human analogies Attempting to explain the Trinity falls short. The doctrine of the Trinity, it it does not fully explain the mysterious character of God, but instead sets boundaries outside of which we must not step. It defines the limits of our finite reflection. It demands that we be faithful to the biblical revelation that in one sense, God is one. And in another sense, God is three. The reason I want to point out these two doctrines at this point, the hypostatic union, Jesus is uh, one person with two natures, fully God and fully man, and the Trinity, that God is one God made up of three distinct persons who know and love one another in perfect harmony, is because even though these teachings were, were cemented as part of biblical Christianity long ago, even though the early church put many heretical teachings to bed through various councils and creeds, some of them still survive today, but with different names. For instance, one of the the false teachings, which was called Arianism, which denies the eternal existence of God the Son, right? It says Jesus was created like you or me. It was refuted by Athanasius at the uh, Council of Nicaea in 325, and there came a creed from that that you are probably familiar with. It's called the Nicaean Creed, right? It It goes a little bit like this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who, for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic, that's universal, and apostolic church. 
I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. See, despite this council, despite these creeds and confessions of Christianity, Arianism continues to exist today in different cults and sects that sometimes try to categorize themselves as Christian. It's very sneaky. Uh, And even though the early church tried to snuff them out, false teachings are a little bit like cockroaches, that you just can't kill them. They keep coming back. The way that you would know Arianism today is under the name Jehovah's Witness. I bring them up in particularly because they knocked on my door last week, right? I had a conversation with them. Uh, They've also been knocking on a few of your doors, as, as I know. But you're all smart people. You come to church and you learn about doctrines like the hypostatic union and the Trinity, things that they would deny but that are essential to biblical Christianity. Because you know that Scripture teaches these things, they will not fool you. But perhaps you will be able to persuade them to faith in Christ. I've also put a a sheet in the back. If you know where the bulletins are, they're like three little case things. Two of them hold Sunday school material. The third one from the left is actually... uh, uh, five-ish pages that will help you uh, converse with Jehovah's Witnesses in the event that they knock on your door pretty soon, all right? Don't be intimidated. The front end sounds a little heady, but it's going to show you a little box and how to work through the chapter one of the book of John to prove that Jesus indeed claimed to be God. And so the reasons that we talk about things, which Jesus is, is teaching here, like the hypostatic union and the Trinity, is because I want you to believe Jesus' testimony about himself, and I want you to believe and know the truth about Jesus. Jesus is God, and it's his claim to be God that gets him killed. See verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. A power that court did not have, by the way. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and strike him, saying, prophesy, who hit you? And the guards received him with blows. Caiaphas tears his clothing in outrage and turns the trial into a riot. He seems a mess. He seems inflamed, out of control, angry. But inside, he's smiling calmly. He will get what he wants. He, along with the other religious leaders, have their verdict, guilty. They have their sentence, death. And now they have their charge, blasphemy. Finally, they can put an end to the carpenter's boy from the country. They need only wait for the sun to climb over the horizon and gain the endorsement of Rome. You see, in the end, it's not the false witness born against Jesus that brings about his death, but his own testimony about his identity. I do want to point out, Jesus is still in control here. That sermon that we called Charles in charge is really important. We keep pointing back to it because Jesus is in control throughout this whole thing. He knows Judas is coming to him in the garden. Behold, here comes my betrayer. 
knows what's going to happen. He submits himself to the Father's will, saying, let the scriptures be fulfilled. He's still in control here. They want to condemn him, but they don't have any evidence. But he will give testimony so that he will be condemned. He chooses to die and absorb the wrath of God for his people. Imperfect deserters, imperfect disciples like us. He testifies honestly because he's not willing to exchange his loyalty to the Father or his loyalty to us for safety. He submits himself to suffering out of obedience to the Father's will. Hebrews tells us also, for the joy set before him. And the joy set before him was us. It was you and me. He already had perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. When Jesus went to the cross, it was to save you. He knew his honest testimony would bring on beatings and spitting and a hammer and nails. He knew his declaration would bring about his suffering and the breaking of his body. Still, he broke his silence. He suffered all of this for you. So gather all of your failures and your insecurities and your fears. Bring them to him now. Close the distance between yourself and Jesus. Trust him. Let him give you rest. Believe the truth about Jesus, that he is God, that he lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and rose from the dead to prove his person and his power so that you might be united to him by faith and enjoy eternal peace with God and his people. Jesus declared, he broke his silence declaring, I am and you will, so that we would know the truth about who he is, why he came, and what he accomplished. And what he accomplished was the salvation of those who would trust in him. He did not lie here. He is God, and he did come to rescue his people. But for those that refuse to submit to his lordship, he will come as judge. I pray that you will believe in him and that you will enter into the peace and the rest that only he provides. Trust him now as he offers himself to you in mercy before he comes on the clouds as judge of everything to avenge all the wrongs that have ever been done, to bring about justice that he might wipe every tear from the eye. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel, for your willingness to suffer in our place for our sins so that we might have friendship with you. We, created beings, who have had the nerve to set ourselves up as your enemies in rebellion, you came and died for us instead of rightly just ending us. Lord, thank you. Words cannot express this kind of grace. They can't explain this kind of love. 
yet you have given it to those who will trust in you by faith. Lord, how marvelous, how wonderful it is to know you. Father, help us to hold this truth tightly. Pray these things in your name, for your glory. Amen.